0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, November 28th, 2014, Episode 3, Concerning a Vision of Heaven and Hell and a Bad Outlook for the Bishop. Hello, and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I only just realized that this episode will drop on Black Friday, Um, and I'm wishing now that I dug up a story about a mercantile dispute of some kind. Uh, I have a really short item about people fighting over getting to loot a shipwreck, Um, but that one's going to need an appendix or two before it really constitutes an episode. So maybe next November, uh, I'll come up with a more appropriately themed episode. But today, we're going to hear an 11th century vision of hell, one that reminds us that such visions, and indeed the idea of putting one's political enemies in hell, uh, that these have a literary history that stretches back long before Dante. And you know, as I think about it, uh, American listeners who have just made it through extended family gatherings and maybe braved the Black Friday sales, Uh, for them, perhaps a vision of hell is an appropriate holiday theme after all. I should note that this episode is a two-parter. What happens in today's reading is going to set up what we'll hear next time, um, and this two-parter will also transition us from a supernatural episode to one of purely human violence. Uh, We're going to have plenty of stories with supernatural or miraculous elements on this podcast, uh, but I want to balance that as much as I can with accounts of more clearly historical or at at the least naturalistic human outrages uh, and other sorts of experiences of people in extremis. Um, But that more journalistic record of a rather horrible murder will come next time. Right now, uh, let's take a little trip to the other side. Our passage for today comes from one of the great Northern English medieval histories, the libellus de exordio atque procurso istius hoc est dunelmensis ecclesia, uh, which is to say the tract on the origins and progress of this the Church of Durham by Simeon of Durham, Uh, and I was able to say, that entire title, without stumbling entirely through the magic of editing. Uh, This book's also sometimes um, known more simply as the history of the Church of Durham, Um, and that's generally how I will refer to it uh, from this point forward. This is one of those histories that pops up everywhere, uh, because it was so liberally appropriated into the texts of later historians, sometimes with attribution to Simeon, uh, but often without. Um, this, of course, was perfectly standard practice in its day. Uh, in fact, just recently, I was reading a lesser-known monastic chronicle, hunting up material for future episodes of this podcast, and I started copying out some passages until I realized that they sounded very familiar. And a quick check later, and I discover that they're stories that come almost verbatim from Simeon, and which in some cases I'd already earmarked for... For use, I do have to confess that one of my greatest anxieties in doing this podcast is that I'll make myself look foolish to more serious scholars by eventually crediting uh, a story to some minor text without realizing that it's been borrowed straight from uh, a much more famous source that I'm really supposed to know about. Uh, I imagine there are some circles where failing to recognize another author's cribbing from Simeon of Durham would be a gaffe on the same level as thinking that Jimi Hendrix wrote All Along the Watchtower instead of Bob Dylan. Um, Well, a gaffe among rock and folk aficionados anyway. But the basic bibliographic facts. Uh, The history of the Church of Durham was written sometime in the first two decades of the 12th century by Simeon, a monk of Durham. Uh, At least that's what the rubrics on a couple of the manuscripts tell us. There's virtually no biographical information embedded in the text itself, Uh, and so Simeon remains to us one of the many medieval authors who is really little more than a name and a job title. His history covers the development of Durham from the mid-7th century to pretty close to Simeon's own day over 400 years later, so it's a nice expansive regional history. One of the main themes of the text is the history of the cult of St. Cuthbert, including all the various adventures uh, that the saint's supposedly incorruptible corpse went on during the various dislocations caused by the Viking raids of the 8th and 9th centuries. Uh, We'll almost certainly hear some of those in future episodes, Uh, but today's text is not a Cuthbert story. Uh, Today we're focusing on the nearer end of the timeline, on an event which would have occurred during... Simeon's own lifetime. The larger context for this story is tied into significant political history of the decades immediately after William the Conqueror took over England. Uh, But this podcast isn't really about the history, uh, and so I don't want to get bogged down in trying to explain the politics and motives of all the characters, Um, and I would have to do a lot of Work to be able to do that. That's not all information I have entirely in my head. Um, so even if the characters are historically famous or important characters, uh, if they're not directly relevant to the basic comprehension of the specific scene I'm sharing, um, you know I'll leave leave them to your own uh, Wikipedia searches um, to to explore. But here's a very brief sketch of two of the key figures. That uh, show up in today's selection. The first character is the Bishop of Durham, Bishop Walker. Uh, that's spelled with a CH and not a K, so it could also be pronounced Walcher or Walker or Walshare, depending on language and dialect, uh, but I'm going to go with the simpler Walker option. Walker became bishop in 1072, and Simeon tells us that he was, quote, A noble-born man of Lotharingian race, exceedingly well-instructed in divine and secular knowledge, was elected by the king himself and consecrated to the bishopric of the Church of St. Cuthbert. He was a venerable, white-haired man, worthy of such an honor by the sobriety of his ways and the integrity of his life. Walker's interesting because he's one of these ecclesiastical figures you do sometimes encounter in monastic histories who is praised for his holiness and learning and righteous living— Uh, but who turns out to be kind of a disaster as a leader or administrator. That kind of person, be they a bishop or an abbot or a king, puts chroniclers in a tough spot because they really like clean lines of moral cause and effect. A good person should perform good acts that produce good outcomes, and bad people should perform wicked acts uh, that have horrible outcomes. So when a person of admirable character is causing bad outcomes, uh, that becomes an ideological problem. One of the conventional excuses, uh, especially for kings, is to blame everything on bad counselors. Though you do sometimes find a pragmatic chronicler who's prepared to accept that a person can be morally upright, but just not equipped to do a particular job well. Uh, In this case... Uh, Simeon kind of blends those two things in his depiction of the ill-fated bishop. The other major character referred to in today's passage um, is the Northumbrian Earl Waltheof, who, as Wikipedia quite succinctly puts it, was, quote, the last of the Anglo-Saxon earls and the only English aristocrat to be executed during the reign of William I, unquote. That's a significant, if rather passive, claim to fame. Uh, Waltheof gets involved in a revolt against William the Conqueror and comes out a loser. Because of his death, Bishop Walker is actually given control of the Northumbrian earldom by the king. Uh, This act is referenced right at the beginning of today's text. Then something a bit confusing happens in, in our reading. Within the vision of hell, there's another reference to a person named Waltheof. This person was responsible for murdering the bishop. But Earl Waltheof, of course, had been dead for about four years before Bishop Walker was killed. So this must be a different Waltheof. Quite possibly it would be somebody from the Earl's family, however, Uh, and this would be a family name passed down. That said, the precise identity of this person remains unknown. But I think that's more than enough context for this little story. One other thing to note, uh, though, Simeon makes a reference in his narrative to a previous miracle, one recorded in Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Uh, this would be the famous episode known as the Vision of Drichthelm, um, This story involves a thane uh, named Drichthelm who came back to life after having seemingly died of an illness and then was able to share a story about being guided through the antechambers of the afterlife. But that's enough table setting. Uh, Let's get to the turkey. I'll be reading from David Rollison's 2000 edition and translation of Simeon. Bishop Walker was so zealous that not only did he not permit any of the possessions of the church to suffer harm, but he also increased them by acquiring through the king's gift a distinguished place, namely Waltham with its noble church, which is noted for its congregation of canons. After Earl Waltheof had been captured by the king, the bishop also received the rule of the earldom of Northumbria. He was worthy of the love of all through the honesty of his life and the sobriety and gentleness of his ways. However, because he did not restrain his men from freely doing what they wished, and indeed doing several things of a hostile nature, he offended the native inhabitants. Furthermore, his archdeacon took much of the money and many of the ornaments from the church and distributed them among his relations and friends. The knights also behaved very arrogantly towards the people, robbing many with violence and killing some, even some of the older people. When the bishop disregarded their wrongdoing and did not constrain them with the censure of his episcopal authority, he was one day struck down along with them and died because of their sins, just as Eli once died for the guilt of his sons. Shortly before his death, however, almost the same miracle happened in the province of the Northumbrians, which Bede described in his History of the English as having formerly happened there. That is, a certain person rose from the dead to life. This man, whose name was Edwolf, and who lived not far from Durham in a vill called Ravensworth, fell ill and died at nightfall on the Sabbath. But in the morning before sunrise he revived from death, and sat up suddenly, so that everyone who was sitting there mourning him was struck with great fear and trembling and took to flight. But as they fled he called them back and said, Do not be afraid, for I have truly risen from the dead. Make the sign of the holy cross on yourselves and on this house. When he had said this, an innumerable multitude of little birds flocked through the door from the outside of the building and filled the whole house in which they sat, flying with great boldness hither and thither, and almost bumping into the eyes of those who were watching. The deacon, who had been sent there by the priest when he went back to the church, ran and sprinkled the people and the house with holy water. At once the monstrous multitude of birds vanished before their eyes like smoke. The man who had arisen from the dead, however, told them many things concerning the blessedness of the just and the punishments of the damned which he had seen when he had been separated from his body. Further, he said that some whom he had previously known he had recognized amongst the blessed rejoicing in the flowery places, while to certain others who were still alive he foretold that the eternal tortures and torments were prepared for them in hell. One of these was Waltheof, who afterwards was the perpetrator of the bishop's death, and this is what he said he had seen of him Woe, woe to him! In the middle of the infernal oven a dwelling has been prepared for him. An iron seat made red-hot with eternal fire is prepared for him. All around, flames hiss, and with a terrible noise the seat constantly throws up unquenchable sparks. On either side stand fearsome attendants with iron chains, evil spirits waiting to receive Waltheof in that seat and to bind the wretched man piteously with indissoluble bonds in the conflagration of the eternal fire. After saying this, He asked where the bishop and the archdeacon were with their household. When he was told they were in Durham, he responded, They have all perished now, the bishop has died, and his men who are now raised up in arrogance are reckoned to be no more. Those who were sitting round knew that the bishop was safe with all his household, and thought that the man was not speaking with sound mind. He addressed them again, I know myself to be quite sane, and by this sign you will be able to prove whether what I say is true. If I die before or after next Tuesday, you will know that everything you have heard from me has been false. But if I die on that day itself, you will know that what I have spoken is beyond doubt the truth. When Tuesday came, he died, and not long afterwards, the unexpected murder of the bishop and all his household showed clearly by this course of events that what the man had predicted was true. But that miserable Waltheof, for whom he had seen such torments of hell prepared after the impious killing of such a great bishop, was himself killed by his wife's brother and went to suffer the infernal punishments. So, when we return next week, we'll find out just exactly how Bishop Walker meets his terrible end. It's pretty dramatic, I must say. Uh, So, this is a holiday, um, and I'm going to be fairly brief in my commentary uh, on this vision. I think it speaks pretty well for itself, anyway. And as a general rule, I'd like for our episodes to be proportionally a bit more on the text, and a little bit less of me rambling on. Um, Of course, that's just naturally going to get easier and easier as we go along, and I exhaust my meager storehouse of knowledge. But there is one interesting phrase in this text that grabbed my attention. When Edwulf first comes back to life, everyone is terrified, which is perfectly understandable. But when he sees them freaking out, what he says is, Do not be afraid, for I have truly risen from the dead. In the original Latin text, uh, that would be Were a morte sorexi. It's the truly, the vera, that stands out. Now, as an adverb, it can simply be a kind of stock intensifier. It could basically mean, Indeed, I have risen from the dead. Or, in truth, I've come back to life. Or, you know, similar phrases. But it could also signify real truthfulness as opposed to falsity or deception. So what would it mean to have falsely risen from the dead? Well, the Middle Ages has its share of ghosts and revenants, and indeed, medieval ghosts are very often depicted as having physical bodies. Similarly, there is debate here and there about whether these revenants are actually human spirits persisting on earth after death which is theologically troubling in some schools, uh, or if instead they're demonic spirits possessing corpses or creating illusions of walking corpses. So, Eldred's reassurance that he has truly returned from the dead emphasizes that it is he who has come back and occupies that body, and not some imposter spirit. It also announces that he is actually back to life and not undead. Perhaps. That's my reading of it anyway, and I I think it's supported by the further action taken that his assertion alone is not enough, but a comprehensive blessing and ritual purification is also necessary before everyone feels at ease. Um, This also suggests that there's an underlying fear of the wrong way to come back from the dead. The other thing that's interesting is the flock of birds, uh, which I haven't noticed in any other near-death experience tales of this kind. Uh, if anyone out there has seen this motif and other stories of this time period, I'd love to hear about it in the comments section of this episode at MedievalDeathTrip.com or via a tweet. You can tweet to me at uh, at MDTpodcast. The one connection I made, of course, is to the classical tradition of the psychopomp, Uh, birds who are associated in mythology or folklore with the guiding of spirits to and from the other world. Uh, And I wish I could say I know the term psychopomp because I was a classics major as an undergrad. I was. Uh, But truth be told, uh, psychopomp entered my vocabulary through Stephen King's book The Dark Half, uh, where supernatural flocks of sparrows play a key plot role. Anyway, uh, I can think of a number of examples of birds as guides or vehicles for spirits in uh, medieval literature or allegory, Um, but I'd be very curious to hear about other instances of supernatural flocks accompanying deathbed scenes in historical or hagiographical writing. Last week, I left you with our very first riddle, and I promised to come back and give you the answer. Well, I'm nothing, if not a man of my word, so here we go. Our riddle, which I took from the claret riddles, or claretti enigmata, was a silent guest, a speaking house, the guest will be caught while the house gets away through a hole. Uh, This is a rather popular classical riddle that shows up in a number of variations. The answer a fish and water. The fish is the silent guest, they make no sound, and its speaking house is the babbling brook. You scoop the fish up in a net, and the fish gets caught while the house runs out through the holes in the net. So now let's move on to a brand new riddle. Uh, This is one for which you could probably come up with dozens of plausible answers. Um, but the text I'm taking this from does actually provide what uh, I guess we could call an authentic medieval answer, um, rather than scholarly speculation about what the right answer might be. So let's see if we can think uh, sufficiently medievally uh, and come up with uh, the right answer to it. Here's the riddle. What thing is it? The less it is, the more it is dread. What thing is it? The less it is, the more it is dread. Well, for the answer, come back next time. And that brings us to the end of this Black Friday episode of Medieval Death Trip. You can get more information about today's text at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also access our previous episodes. We're on Twitter, Twitter at mdt podcast and i'll be back with the murder of bishop walker in two weeks happy holidays safe travels and thanks for listening